Hello, and welcome to the Eureka Podcast from the Hoover Institution, focusing on the public policy issues facing California. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today I'm joined by a trio that put in a lot of the work on this issue, Hoover Research Fellows Carson Bruno and Bill Whalen, as well as Bruce Kane, Professor of Political Science at Stanford University and Director of the Center for the American West. Uh, gentlemen, thank you all for being here. Thank you, Troy. Sure. So the topic of this issue of Eureka, one that's on the mind of a lot of Californians right now, water, namely the fact that there isn't enough of it in the state right now thanks to the drought. And Bill, let's just set the stage here for maybe listeners who aren't in California or maybe are but don't really understand the ins and outs of this. Can you just give us a thumbnail sketch of how bad the drought is and what some of the major effects have been? Right. Um, actually, let's begin by talking about a different disaster, which is the Valley Fire, which is north of Sacramento. Uh, this has been going on for two weeks. It's blazed through about 75,000 acres of land, destroyed about 1,000 homes. It's, I believe, the third worst fire in California history now. But it's also a regional story in this regard. You don't notice it if you live in Sacramento, or excuse me, if you live in San Francisco or Los Angeles, just as if there were an earthquake in San Francisco, you wouldn't really be affected in Los Angeles. If a terrible mudslide wiped out Malibu and, and uh, your, your lovely beach house in Malibu, you wouldn't feel it in San Diego or Sacramento. The drought, though, is a different animal. You travel north, south, east, west, coastal, valley, mountain ranges of California, and you see the drought. You see it anecdotally driving around and noticing how brown the land is. That's brown with a lowercase b, not Governor Brown. <laughs> you see it in terms of low water supplies if you drive by aquifers, if you drive by reservoirs, and you see it in water bills. Californians of all income levels feel this, and whereas I mentioned that fire was a two-week story, this is now a four-year story going on. There is obviously an economic toll on the state, but there is also, I'd argue, a psychological toll, uh, which you can't necessarily measure but figure it this way. California is, at the end of the day, a pretty optimistic society. We're diverse. We're upbeat. Maybe it's from living too much under the sun, but we tend to feel good about the future. It's hard to feel good about the future when you are thirsty, when you're dry. Uh, so what you've noticed here is you have a situation now that affects all of California, 38 millions, and it's very easy to find villains in this, in this production. The climate change crowd uses it for its agenda. Uh, those who don't like climate change and those who are opposed to environmental laws point out the Delta smelt and say that we've created laws that have started this because we now favor the Delta smelt over farmers. Those people who don't like golf courses have singled out golf courses and their thirst for water. Those people uh, who don't like farming necessarily have singled out almond growers. I was reading an article the other day about the bottled water industry and how it taps into springs and aquifers with very little government oversight. So we in California have done a very good job of erecting pinatas and taking swings at various <laughs> villains in this. Uh, but the problem is this moving forward. Two things have to happen. First of all, uh, there has to be an even rarer commodity than H2O in California, and that is leadership in Sacramento. People who can come up with common sense solutions, but also can build consensus. And then secondly, and this is why we did this Golden State poll, voters are going to have to pitch in. We're going to have to find out how much voters are willing to sacrifice, how much they're willing to change their lifestyles, how they're willing to give up their California way, if you will, or adapt it to what may be a drier future. So with that in mind, we commissioned this poll, and we looked into various aspects of what water policy means to California. We studied voters' willingness to use recycled wastewater, uh, a phrase you're going to hear in the future, toilet water. 
Uh, we looked into the business of water allocation. Are we uh, more willing to move water from ag to residential? We looked into water restrictions. If people are willing to uh, cut back, if communities are willing to share their groundwater supplies. And we looked at relaxing environmental laws. And I thought we came up with some pretty interesting uh, results in terms of what Californians are willing to do and not to do. And having said that, I'm more than glad to hand this over to Carson and Bruce for their study <laughs> of what the results show us. Yeah, well, yeah, Bruce, well, let me turn to you with that question. Um, a number of uh, number of options presented to voters in this poll, many of which Bill mentioned there. What what did we see in terms of what Californians maybe are or aren't comfortable with as possible remedies for addressing the situation? Well, I think we saw several things. First of all, that the public is pretty much in sync with what uh, the uh, DWR and the state officials have done to date. That is to say. Uh, the state started with voluntary cutbacks. That didn't work very well, so we went to mandatory uh, cutbacks where the amount of water that you could use was calibrated to uh, what you had used in 2013. And there have been stories about the controversies related to that because communities that had done a lot of work before were saying, well, this isn't fair. We're not getting credit for uh, what we did prior to 2013. Uh, there was concern about whether people would really adhere to these mandatory cutbacks or whether they would prefer to do it through the pricing mechanism. And what we found in our poll is that they support the water cutbacks. Uh, they're a little more divided, but on plurality, they support the fact that the baseline of these restrictions was made in 2013. And most importantly, they support an all above all of the above strategy with respect to water supply. That means that you know uh, they support reservoirs and they support dams. Uh, they support uh, stormwater recycling. They support desal. They support aquifers. All of these they support at levels of 70% and above, overwhelmingly in favor of an all of the above policy. But at the same time, what I think we discover, if you look carefully, is if this drought continues, I read our poll as saying that the public's going to be looking for concessions from both the environmental community and from the farming community. It's not an either-or proposition. Uh, in a number of the questions that we asked, it's very clear that uh, water storage is a top priority for them, and uh, they would like to see policies that more efficiently distribute the water. They want to see policies that, that uh, uh, expedite some of the environmental policies that prevent the construction of stormwater, uh, aquifer refills, and reservoirs, that they would like to see storage maintain a higher priority. And in one of our, experiment, uh, two, you know, one of our experiments looked at recycling as a possibility. What we discovered is there are some things people will not do because of the yuck factor. They won't drink it for the most part, and even with a little information about science, you still can't get to a majority view, but many of them are willing to use water for other purposes, from watering the lawn to uh, potentially even washing clothes. So uh, I think it gives some signs that if we if we have another year or two, or if this continues for even longer, clearly there's going to be some structural change afoot, and that structural change has the support of public opinion, at least as far as we can tell at this moment in time, looking at this data. Carson, are there any partisan fissures on this issue, or is there a Republican or a Democratic way of approaching water policy? It, it appears not to really be that case. It appears that across the board, you see a lot of unity on 
what Californians want Sacramento and then also their local water districts to be doing, um, which is actually quite unique um, on a policy issue, especially in California, where you have significant regional divides um, and a country that is increasingly becoming more partisan. Um, So what you're finding here and what we found in the Golden State Poll is there's a lot of opportunity for Sacramento to really make dramatic reforms and how California uses its water and how California um, manages its water supply. Can you guys give us a sense? This is open to any of you who want to take this, but it occurs to me. I probably should have done this a few moments ago. Can you give our listeners a sense of what has Sacramento done thus far in the in the last few years where this has been an issue? I think it was Bill who mentioned the um, – or I'm sorry. I think actually several of you have mentioned the uh, the voluntary restrictions and things like that. What have been the major policy responses so far? Well, I think the restrictions have been uh, the most immediate and I think most important in terms of cutting water use. But the reality is if you look at bond measures uh, going back through almost you know, to the late 90s, we passed a number of bond measures that have been, uh, basically funded uh, water infrastructure projects. Uh, so that's the good side. I mean we really have put a lot of money into encouraging communities to uh, improve their water infrastructure. The nut that we haven't cracked in this state is the sharing of water resources. That is to say – Uh, We don't have a kind of integrated water system the way we do with the electricity system. We move electrons all up and down the state uh, very rapidly. Water molecules move move slowly, and they are often restricted. So we have groundwater supplies. We have some communities that have groundwater supplies. Uh, They have ample uh, amount of water. They're not compelled to share that groundwater. There are are no real pipelines that – uh, connect all the local communities. We have major pipelines that move the water from north to south and east and west, east to west. But we really don't have integrated planning, and we haven't put it into our, our urban uh, into our land use policy. So we often allow construction without asking the question, "Where are we going to get the water?" So there's a lot of stuff here that I think we're going to need to do in the future. Some of these are going to be very, very tough questions. But it's very clear that uh, some of these things really do have latent support in public opinion. And if you were to judge it from some of the groups that get on TV or get in the radio, you wouldn't think that there was as much consensus as there is there in the public. But it's very clear the public really wants to see water supply uh, dealt with in a serious manner. I, th- I think – Go ahead, Carson. I, I was going to say I think our the, the three feature commentary uh, pieces in this issue of Eureka really kind of get to a what Sacramento has and hasn't done, um, but also what have regions or localities uh, have have they what they've been doing um, on this issue. Uh, one of the pieces from Kathy Green, who is the president of the Orange County um, Orange County Water District, did a great piece kind of detailing about how Orange County has been at the forefront of uh, wastewater recycling. Um, dating back to the 1970s, uh, really being the first um, area region to put into a major treatment uh, facility to start to try to replenish their groundwater uh, supplies with using wastewater and how that has only increased and become uh, much more viable as technology has increased over the years to the point where now they can, um, they can basically provide water up to 800,000, 800 plus thousand people in Orange County. Uh, so you're seeing significant um, approaches at the local level, um, not so much at Sacramento maybe, but definitely um, within various regions. There's been a lot of talk about a, a prospect for a fairly active El Nino season that gets you a lot more moisture on the ground in California this year. As, assuming that happens, 
what effect does that have on this going forward? Is that does that take care of a lot of the long term problem, or is it more of a short term fix? It takes care of it. Uh, it actually gets in the way of dealing with a long term structural problem because everybody says, "Yeah, it will replenish the reservoirs to some degree." But, but it won't put us back to where we need to be unless we have uh, three or four El Ninos in a row. Because a lot of the water that pours down in El Nino uh, goes out to sea. We just don't have ways of capturing it. And unless it, it stores up in the mountains as a snowpack, unless it's a very cold El Nino, which is not likely to be the case, right. then that water is going to roll right down the hills. And unless we have the stormwater uh, capture systems and the reservoir systems and whatever to capture that water, put it into aquifers, put it into reservoirs, it's just going to go out to sea and then we're not going to get the full benefit that we could out of the El Nino. There's something else that could happen with this too, and I don't want to be a, you know, a bringer of gloom and doom, but if you look at what happened <laughs> in Australia after they, they had a break in their drought, uh, they had major problems with their levees because levees get very dry, obviously, and get weak over a period of time. And then you put a large amount of water on, into the levee, and the levee can give and crack. So uh, a governor of California, I can say this having worked for one, uh, is smart to have what we call the disaster jacket in his closet because he is constantly going out and doing <laughs> disaster events. And and in the wintertime, these are floods in the Russian River up north, a town called Guerneville, which always gets overrun. Uh, but it's just Mother Nature is constantly throwing problems at California. So Bruce is right. The El Nino rain uh, is not going to solve all our problems just based not only on the pure content of water that's needed, but also warm water that's going to run off at lower altitudes and cause flooding perhaps. So uh, oddly enough, the more rain we could get could present a new set of problems for the governor. But again, you know, the old line about, you know, crisis and opportunity, it presents this governor with the chance to have a large discussion about water, a governor who is, by the way, looking at two more years in office and is keenly interested in legacy items. So if Jerry Brown wants to be bold in 2016, he can put water into a state of the state address and come up with an agenda for the legislature to follow. Bill, help me out here as a cultural matter. The first word that comes to mind when you're talking about California is not restraint. Right. And yet we're we're talking here about I guess you could call it water austerity. You, right. you mentioned in your piece at Eureka people having um, rock lawns, the kinds that you see in places like Arizona. People getting fined for consuming too much water. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, there, there's a pronounced environmental impulse in California, but does that strike you as something that's going to be sustainable over the long haul? As something that Californians will put up with? It's a flashpoint, and the flashpoint, I think, is actually be with wealthier Californians. If you go to a community such as uh, Rancho Santa Fe, which is north of San Diego, you have people who live in houses that are in, uh, you know, valued at $10 million or more, and they tend to own large pieces of land, several acres of land. They put orchards on their land. They put a lot of, they put a lot of green on their land, and they use a lot of water. And the attitude from those people is we will pay what it takes to use water. So what if the state says that you know, it's not just a matter of paying for the water, but we're only going to give you so much water. Now you're going to have a push and pull, if you will. But again, this gets back to what I talked about, the psychological thing about California. Not everybody has a huge chunk of land. Not, not everybody has what Ellie Mae Clampett called a cement pond in their backyard. But but everybody has their own little green corner of California that they like. So this is part of sacrifice. Maybe you can't have a lawn. Maybe you have to have a rock garden and, and uh, cacti where you once had you know lush trees. But this is part of sacrifice moving forward. And again, it's going to be very interesting to see our political leadership try to sell this to Californians in terms of sacrifice and in terms of change. Final question, and this one for all three of you. Uh, looking at the short to midterm over the next, let's say, six to 12 months, 
what are what are the big issues that you're going to be watching here? What are the major developments we need to be looking for to get a sense on how this is going to play out in the future? Well, I, I'm going to be looking at if indeed we do get the El Nino, does it take some of the steam out of uh, the planning that's going on here? Uh, or are we going to be able to really start to tackle some of these issues about how we're going to store water, how we're going to uh, capture it, uh, how we're going to possibly look at the way we market water? You know, we don't have really an efficient market for water right now. Uh, there are tremendous discrepancies in the, in the price that people, uh, you know, wholesale market for water. So I'm looking to see, do we actually just deal with the short-term problem or are we able to take on in a, in a bipartisan way the larger structural issues that make it possible for this state to continue to grow and prosper? Yeah, I think I'll be watching kind of how the, the politics of us all kind of move forward. You know, right now the, the, the biggest, you know, the squeakiest wheels have been those in the Central Valley, partially because the Central Valley has been really decimated um, when it comes to water. Farmers have not been receiving service water transfers. You have communities that are completely without water that are having to get uh, water delivered to them on a daily basis from neighboring, neighboring uh, communities. Um, so naturally, those political leaders are being the ones that are really pushing um, a lot of more radical changes in Sacramento. I'll be watching to see whether those from the Bay Area, from the coastal communities, uh, start to start to really kind of push for these more structural changes that we have to make in order to prevent future droughts in the state. Um, and that probably only will happen whenever Hetch Hetchy, which uh, supplies a San Francisco area with their water um, and some of the other uh, reservoirs start to really reach kind of critical levels. And I'm going to keep uh, the, what I would look for is a question of eye on the ball. Let's say that we do have healthy rain this winter, but it causes problems with, with levees and we do have breaks. That then becomes an infrastructure discussion. And Sacramento just emerged from several special sessions, one of which was supposed to deal with infrastructure and failed. That's a very sexy topic for lawmakers because ultimately you're talking about construction and a lot of projects back in the home district. Will lawmakers get distracted from the drought because ironically there's rain? All right. My guests have been Carson Bruno, Bruce Kane, and Bill Whalen. Be sure to check out their work in the new issue of Eureka at hoover.org slash Eureka. And gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Troy. Thank you. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. All right. Nice work, guys. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.